Well, good morning, church. How we doing? Everybody good this morning? Yes, good, great. So glad you're here with us this morning. For those who are joining us online, wherever you are in the world, we're so glad that you're with us as well. I want to encourage you now, grab your Bible and join me in the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2 is where we're going to be spending some time this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2. And as you're turning there, a couple of things I want to say right up front. First, I want to let you know that a week from tomorrow, our VBS kicks off, our Vacation Bible School. It is going to be an unbelievable week. You do not want to miss VBS at Shades Mountain. And so we want to encourage you, uh, get plugged in. We still got spots for you to serve. We still got plenty of spots for kids to join us. Be praying about who you can invite. And I do want to say, if you're new to Shades, this is a great way to get to know the church and to get to know some people here at the church. So, so jump in, get involved. It's going to be an amazing Amazing week, and you you may have seen some of the uh, the Western gear that is out in the lobby. Uh, it, the theme is wanted. It's all about the Wild West. Get your cowboy on. It's going to be incredible. And this whole place in about a, a couple of days is going to look like the Wild West. So next Sunday when you show up, it'll look like the Wild West. And all next week as we get into VBS, we're going to have a Wild West showdown. It's going to be an incredible, incredible week. Thank you for praying for all who will be involved. Secondly, I want to tell you how grateful I am to be back. We, we had an incredible trip to Greece and we uh, got the amazing privilege of being able to study the word of God, walking in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul in a lot of different places. This is Megan and I standing on the rocks that are known as Mars Hill, looking up at the Acropolis where the Apostle Paul preached uh, a very well-known sermon in Acts chapter 17 uh, about the power of the gospel. And you can just imagine preaching a sermon with that as the backdrop and the way the Lord used that in Athens in an, in an incredible way. We had such a great trip and I'm so thankful to be back with you and so grateful for Ben Baber, our college pastor, who absolutely laid down the word last week. He did, can y'all give it up for Ben? I mean, he did a great job. Yes. Awesome. Awesome, awesome message. He laid the lumber. It was, it was really, really incredible. And now I'm grateful to get to step right back in where he left off. So in your Bible, 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to look at two verses here today, verses 11 and 12. And, and I do want you to know, if you don't have a Bible with you today, they're all over the room. Go ahead and grab one so that you can see for yourself what the Word of God is saying as we walk through this time together. And I want to invite you to stand with me now as I read from the Word of God, the two verses that will be our focus this morning, 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. I realize if you're new to Shades, you may be saying, okay, why are they standing again? What are we doing? We stand each week for the reading of God's Word to be reminded of, of what we just sang. That underneath the feet of the followers of Jesus Christ, there is a firm foundation that firm foundation is laid out for us in the infallible, inerrant, unchangeable word of God. It is what the people of God stand upon. And through the word of God, we see the good news of the gospel. We see what Christ has done. We see what God says is right and good and true. And so when we stand for the reading of God's word, we're being reminded of what God has given us and what we stand 
upon. So this is what the scripture says, 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The word of God laying before the church how we're to interact with the world around us. That's where Peter begins to take us here for the remainder of chapter two. Let's pray together this morning that God would use his word to speak into our lives what he knows we need to hear. Would you pray with me and then we'll be seated. Father, we thank you for this time. We're so grateful for the, the power and the authority of your word. And we pray now the Holy Spirit would guide us through this time of examining your word, that we would have open eyes to see what you desire for us to see, that we would have open ears to, to listen and receive what you know we need to hear on this day. Father, we thank you for this time and we commit it to you. We pray that above all else, you would be glorified through what happens here as a result of your word being proclaimed. Use this for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing with me. And you may have already gathered this by now, but in case you're, you're not aware of what these tables around the room represent, we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper here together this morning at the end of this message. And I just want to say as a, as a word of reminder that the Lord's Supper is a ceremony of remembrance. When Jesus gave this, this ceremony that has become an ordinance in the church to his disciples right before he went to the cross, he, he told his disciples, he instructed his disciples to observe these elements to remember what he was doing. Remember the cross, Jesus is saying. Remember the price that has been paid. And then we also see in the word of God that the Lord's Supper is an opportunity for us to examine this is a ceremony of remembrance and an invitation to examine. We, we are called by the scripture. The apostle Paul talks about this when he writes to the church in Corinth. When you go to the Lord's table, when you take of these elements, examine yourself. Consider, is there something that needs to be brought before the Lord? Is there something that needs to be laid at the cross? And so today through 1 Peter 2, we're going we're gonna to see how the word of God invites us to this, this ceremony of remembrance and invites us to examine ourselves and to consider what might need to be laid at the foot of the cross. You see, the two verses that we're looking at today, they really serve as a transition in this letter. And if you've been with us for this study or for, for any of these sermons in, in 1 Peter, we have seen over and over again throughout chapter one in the beginning of chapter two of 1 Peter that, that Peter shows us and unpacks for us and lays before us the power of the gospel. That's what Peter is doing at the beginning of this letter. Over and over again, he's saying, look at what Christ has done. Look at what you have been given if you are in Christ. Look at who you are in light of the gospel. Over and over again, time and time again, Peter lays the gospel before the church. And in these two verses, 
There is this this shift. There is this transition where Peter goes, okay, in light of what you have heard, in light of what you have been given through the finished work of Christ, your life should now begin to reflect what you have received. And he starts to talk about the things that the church is called to do and the things that the church is called to not do. There are some things we need to grab a hold of. There's, there's some ways we need to live and there's some things that we also need to avoid. It's important to see that as Peter begins to talk about our behavior and the way we're to live in light of the gospel, he reminds us again one more time of our identity if we are in Christ. Before he gets into the instructions in this letter, he reminds us again of who we are if we are in Christ, if we have received the good news of salvation that comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what does he say? Look at verse 11. This is an identity statement. He says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. These words are so important for the church of Jesus Christ, especially as we start to talk about how we are called to live, especially as we start to talk about our behavior. Peter says, you are the beloved. You are loved by God. This is so important, church. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are perfectly and completely loved. This is such a liberating statement because we are being reminded here that the love of God for his people, the love of God for those who are in Christ is not about the things that you do. It's about what has already been done. This is so important as as Peter starts to talk about instruction and talk about the way to live and talk about the way to behave. He says, do not lose sight of the fact that you are already loved. Do not lose sight of the fact that you are the beloved. You have been loved. You will continue to be loved, not because of what you do, but because of what God has done for you through Christ to call you his child. Because you are his, if you are in Christ, you are loved. This liberating truth changes the why behind the what. It means you are not called to live a certain way so that you can earn the love of God. You are called to live a certain way to reflect the love of God that you have received. You are called to live a certain way to demonstrate the love of God that has been given to you. You are the beloved. Don't lose sight of this. The word of God begins to teach us how to live. But then secondly, that descriptive language that Peter used at the beginning of his letter setting up who he's writing to, he calls the church sojourners and exiles. He's reminding us here again, you are, you are a stranger in a foreign land. This world is your temporary dwelling place. It's, it's not your permanent home. So as one who is completely loved and been called by God to live as a stranger in a foreign land, a sojourner and an exile, you've been called to live a certain way. You've been called to represent the one 
who has set you free. You've been called to to reflect the love that you have received. You've been called to be an ambassador uh, as one living in a foreign land, pointing to the one who has saved you. This language is so important. This This is identity that Peter is reminding us of so that he can then begin to tell us these instructions of how to live. Don't lose sight of who you are and what's been given you if you are in Christ as we turn our attention to the instructions on how to live. Verse 11, it says this. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Peter says, church, there are some temptations that will be around you every single day. There are passions of the flesh that are creating a battleground that you and I live in every single day. But it's interesting to note that as Peter talks about this battleground and as he talks about passions of the flesh, he actually turns our focus inward. And he says these passions of the flesh, they wage war against not your flesh, not against your body. They wage war against your soul. He says, look inside. Because our tendency is to think that the greatest threat we face is actually outside. We look at our culture, we look at our world, we, we look at those who don't agree with us, we look at those who live very different than us and we think, oh, that's the greatest threat. And Peter's saying, no, 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 the greatest threat is actually inside of you. The greatest threat is actually the, the passions of your flesh that wage war inside of you. They, they wage war against your soul. I can only imagine that as Peter is writing this letter and making this statement, about the passions waging war against your soul, he must be thinking about what he heard Jesus teach the disciples. In fact, turn with me, if you would, over to Mark chapter seven. Mark chapter seven, right there near the beginning of the New Testament, one of the the four gospel narratives given to us by Mark the disciple. And this is what we see here in, in Mark's, version of what he saw and heard Jesus share and do. Mark chapter seven, beginning in verse 14. It says this of Jesus, he called the people to him again and he said to them, hear me all of you and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And then verse 17, it says, when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. So so Peter was sitting here in this scene with Jesus and with the other disciples. They said, Jesus, what are you talking about? It's not outside that defiles, it's inside that defiles. Like, what does that mean? And so Jesus unpacks it. Verse 18, he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Now, I really love what Jesus does here just as a little side note. Uh, This really would be a lot of fun at a middle school boys uh, Bible study because Jesus goes straight to, to potty humor. That's what he does. 
He's like, hey, this is what I'm talking about. Like when you eat something, it doesn't go to your heart. It goes to your stomach. And guess what? It gets digested and it comes out. Okay. That's, that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, do you not understand? I mean, when you put something in your body, it's going to come out of your body. What I'm talking about is the stuff that's already in you. That's what defiles you. For the heart is deceitful and desperately sick. And your heart, your heart is actually your problem. See, our, our culture, our culture has got this whole thing all wrong. You know, our culture says, look inside and find out your true self and just be your true self. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 your true self is actually sick. That's the problem. You need a heart transplant. You, you need a heart change. You need a new heart because what's happening inside of you is actually the greatest threat to you. What's happening inside of you is actually what defiles you. So Jesus says, think about it. You're so concerned about what's going on around you and the religious Jews were so concerned about all the different foods and things they were allowed to eat and not eat. And Jesus is going, hey, you're actually missing the point altogether. It's not, it's not the outside going in that defiles you. It's the inside coming out that reveals how much you need the Savior. So Peter hears this message. Peter is there when Jesus teaches this parable. And Peter says, okay, be aware. The passions of the flesh are going to wage war against your soul be aware there is temptation that is going to wage war against your soul and your heart is deceptive. Your heart needs to be brought before the Savior. You need the grace of God to renew your heart. Peter's talking about this battle and he's saying, look, if your private life does not line up with your public life, you are inviting the enemy of God to wage war against your soul. And please don't miss this. Our enemy is a very patient enemy. He's cunning. He's crafty. He is deceitful. He is incredibly patient. And he loves to wait for a time where there will be maximum impact because of a fall. He loves to create as much destruction as he possibly can. He loves to use the passions of the flesh to wage war against the soul, to lead us to the point where we drift away from God so that our life does not reflect at all what we say we believe. You see, the enemy of God knows that when the passions of the flesh begin to grab a grip on your soul, it's gonna take you out of the game. It's either going to take you out of the game because you're going to feel shame and you're going to feel unworthy and you're going to be embarrassed about the things that have happened in private that you don't want anyone to see in public. And so you're just going to kind of disqualify yourself and put yourself on the sidelines because you don't feel worthy or worse. 
The stuff that happens in private, the stuff that that is waging war against your soul, it gets to the point where it comes bursting out publicly and there is a fall. The enemy of God knows how effective this is. And so he is constantly tempting us with the passions of the flesh. So the word of God is saying, be aware. Don't, don't go there. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. What are the passions of the flesh? Well, Jesus actually talks about it in Mark chapter seven, where we just were in that parable. Jesus says this, verse 20, he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him for from within, listen to this, this is the heart of man. From within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. These passions of the flesh, we we all have them in some form or fashion that we wrestle with. Maybe you don't wrestle with them all, but I know you wrestle with some. Maybe for you, it's not sexual immorality or lust, but it's pride and it's greed and it's envy. Maybe for you, it's foolishness. Maybe for you, it's deceit. The enemy knows what passions of the flesh we are going to struggle with, and he's patient. And so Peter is saying, abstain from the passions of the flesh. You need the grace of God every single day. Preach the gospel to yourself every single day. Because if you allow the passions of the flesh to wage war against your soul, at some point, you'll be taken out of the game altogether. On our our trip last week in Greece, we had an incredible experience in so many ways. And we got to see all these beautiful places. We got to study the word of God in places where the word of God was first preached. It, It was just an amazing experience. And one of the highlights for me was our time in Ephesus. Ephesus is actually in modern day Turkey. And we've got a picture up here of, of the amazingly handsome Tommy Buchanan and the beautiful Jan Buchanan with Megan and I. That's the streets of Ephesus there. It's the most impressive archaeological dig I've ever seen. It's incredible. It was amazing to think about the Apostle Paul preaching the gospel in this, in this pagan city and then helping establish a church and sending Timothy to be the pastor of that church and then sending this letter that we now have called Ephesians in our Bible to this church in Ephesus. And this church, y'all, it changed the culture. It changed the city. It was a church where the gospel was alive and there was a season for the church of Ephesus where incredible things were happening and literally the city was different because of the believers in the church in Ephesus. We also talked about how over some time along the way, something, something happened in the church in Ephesus. There's just a subtle little shift that took place. And the church in Ephesus actually walked away, as the scripture says, from its first love. The apostle John in his 
Revelation writes about Ephesus. He writes about seven churches and he lays out warnings about these churches and and ways that churches can lose their way. This is a a warning to every church we see in Revelation chapters two and three and, and beyond. And so in chapter two, the apostle John, he writes about Ephesus and he's speaking on behalf of Jesus here in this revelation. He says this of the church of Ephesus, Revelation 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and not, or not, and found them to be false. And I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake and you have not grown weary. These are all good things, good things in the church of Ephesus. But verse four says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. And so remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, this is a sobering warning. Ephesus was a great church, great leadership. Paul and Timothy led the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was a church that was changing the culture of their city. God was doing a tremendous work through the church in Ephesus. But over time, there was this drift. And even as the drift was happening, the church in Ephesus continued to do good works. They were doing a lot of good things publicly, A lot of good things. But they lost sight of the most important thing. They left their first love and they became more focused on the things that they were doing than on the one who they should have been doing it for. They began to focus more on their works and less on the one who had empowered them for those works to begin with. They left their first love. Love and it says they they fell. So the question I have for all of us is how does this happen? How does someone who's who's passionate about the gospel lose their way? How, How does someone who's walking with Christ lose their first love? First, let me say, and this is so important, this is a a doctrinal statement, the word of God reveals in many ways, this is not talking about losing our salvation. That's not what this is about. You cannot save yourself. You cannot lose what you can't save. Only God can save. God controls salvation. He holds salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It is God who saves And once an individual has trusted their life to the salvation that is provided through Jesus Christ, that salvation is secure. The word of God shows us this. So what is this about? This is talking about our gospel impact. This is talking about the way our life is used for the glory of God. And we can certainly lose our impact. We can certainly lose our effectiveness when things, even good things, 
become more important to us than our first love. And here, here's, here's the warning. And this is what I believe Peter is pointing to. And this is what I believe we see on display in Revelation chapter two with the church in Ephesus. This happens in private long before it happens in public. It's a warning to all of us. The battle is lost against the passions of the flesh in private long before it happens in public. I just think about as a pastor, how many sobering, I would even say terrifying examples I have seen in my 20 years or so in ministry of men of God and men in ministry who have fallen. And every time, every time it happens, it seems like it comes out of nowhere. They're leading a, a, a beautiful church. They're, they're doing effective ministry. And then out of nowhere, they get taken out. But the reality is it's not out of nowhere. The reality is every single time, in private, the passions of the flesh in some form or fashion were waging war and began to win against the soul. And what happens in private eventually becomes public and it's devastating. And so Peter is saying to the church, saying to me, saying to all of us, beware. The passions of the flesh, they are real. They will wage war against your soul. They will attack and attack and attack in private. Your enemy is patient. Don't be taken out. Don't lose your first love. Don't abandon what God has given you. Don't lose your gospel impact. With this in mind, now Peter turns us to our interaction with those around us who do not believe like we believe. He begins to talk about how we're to interact with the world around us. He now is drawing attention to our public witness. He, he says, your private life is going to impact your public life. I'm talking to you about your private life. And now I want to talk to you about your public witness because they are connected. They're always connected. So he says in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Notice the language here of verse 12. And this is very important because many times I think the church of Jesus Christ, especially in this country, is surprised or caught off guard when we face some opposition. But do you see what the Bible says? And the Bible says this clearly. It's not just in Peter. It's in multiple examples all throughout the scripture. It's not if you're going to be attacked. It's not if someone is going to speak against you as an evildoer. It's when. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you will face opposition. It's going to happen. The culture is not going to applaud you for following Jesus. 
Just give up on that. The culture is not going to celebrate you for a life of faithfulness in following Jesus. You're going to face some hostility. You're going to face those speaking against you. And this has been happening since the very beginning of the church. Juan Sanchez in his commentary on 1 Peter writes this. He says, in the first century, Christians were called cannibals for eating the Lord's Supper. We're about to have the Lord's Supper together. People heard about these Christians eating the flesh of Jesus, drinking the blood of Jesus, and they begin to say, those people are crazy. They're cannibals. In the first century, the early church was also called atheists because they were not worshiping the pagan gods. Many gods. The Christians say we have one God. There is one true God. And the culture looked at them and said, oh, you bunch of atheists, you don't really believe in God. If you believe in God, you gotta believe in all the gods. In the first century, they were called disruptors of society and rebels against the emperor. So how do we respond to such hostilities, Sanchez says? We may be tempted to repay evil with evil, but Peter reminds us that we have been called to bless instead. So as temporary residents in this world, we are to bless unbelievers. Listen to this. To bless unbelievers by living honorable, praiseworthy lives that testify to the glory and the goodness of our God. See, here in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter is reminding us something we know is true, but we often lose sight of. The world is always watching the church. The world is going to look at those who say they are following Jesus, if nothing else, out of curiosity. The world is watching. And here's what we know as the world is watching the church. The world is asking about two things. The world is asking, am I lovable? Am I lovable? Am I loved? Well, haven't we already seen this? If you're a follower of Christ, you actually have the answer to that question. If you are in Christ, you are the beloved. If you are in Christ, you are loved. You you know the answer to the question that the world is asking. The world is also asking, can I find hope and peace in this life? And again, if you are in Christ, you know the answer. There is a peace that surpasses all understanding for those who are in Christ. There is a hope that is beyond anything that this world could offer if you are in Christ. He is the Prince of Peace. He is our hope. If you are in Christ, you are loved and you have peace and you have hope. And so as the world is asking these questions, at some point the world is gonna look at those who say they have the answer. They're going to look and go, okay, well, is there really love there? Is there really hope and peace in the lives of those who who say they have the answer? What will the world see when they look at your life and mine? 
Will they see the good news of the gospel on display? More importantly, what will they see when when they look at how we interact with them? Will they see that there is a hope and a peace? Will they see the love of God on display in us? Because listen, here's the reality. Please don't miss this church. It is so incredibly important. If the world looks at your life and sees the gospel, at first they will not understand it. It's foreign. We're sojourners. We're exiles. We're strangers living in a foreign land. And so at times when the world looks at your life, if the world sees the gospel, they're going to attack what they see. You know why? Because they're coming face to face with something they don't have. The gospel reminds us, it reminds you and me, it reminds the world we need a savior. The the gospel reminds us that that, that we are far more sinful than we ever want to admit. When, When held up against a holy and righteous God, we are far more sinful than we want to be honest about. And so when the world sees the gospel on display in your life, it's a reminder that there's something missing. So what this means is when you are attacked for your faith, when people speak against you for what you believe, they're actually acknowledging that they see something in you that they don't have. It's actually an acknowledgement that the gospel is real. When someone comes at you in hostility, they're actually affirming that they see the power of the gospel in your life. So Peter says, when the world attacks you because of the gospel, let them see the gospel. When the world attacks you because of the gospel, don't go on a rant on Facebook. Let them see the gospel. Because the gospel says you, even in your sin, you are loved. And the gospel says in a world where there is no peace, there can be peace. And the gospel says if you recognize the hopelessness of your brokenness, there is hope in the one who has gone to a cross for your sin. When you are attacked because of the gospel, let the gospel shine through. Let those who are looking for love see the love and grace of God on display because isn't this exactly what Jesus has done for us? Isn't this exactly what we see at the cross when when Jesus is on the cross giving his life, shedding his blood and he looks out and one of the final statements he makes before he breathes his last and he says, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. 
And certainly, yes, we know he was talking about the men who, who drove nails through his wrists and his feet. And he was talking about those who, who smashed a crown of thorns on his head. He was talking about those who were hurling insults at him and spitting on him. He was talking about those, but he was also talking about you and me. Because Jesus was not on the cross because of some Roman authority that put him there. Jesus was not on the cross because of some religious Pharisees that, that lost their mind and decided they had to get rid of this guy. Jesus was not on the cross because of a mob. Jesus was on the cross because of the sin of the world, including yours and including mine. And so when Jesus is hanging on that cross and he prays, Father, forgive them, he was praying for you, he's praying for me. Because he says they don't know what they're doing. And that's what sin does to all of us. It causes us to live in a way that we don't know what we're doing. It makes a fool out of us all. And Jesus, in the midst of the hostility, in the midst of the attacks, in the midst of the opposition, he says, Father, forgive them. And he puts the gospel on display. He demonstrates the greatest act of love that the world has ever seen. He shows us how to have peace with God because of the price that he has paid. And he showed us that there is hope beyond the power of sin and beyond the power of the grave because after the cross, the grave is now empty for he has not been defeated. He died for you and for me so that we might live knowing the love and the peace and the hope that is ours because of Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, when Peter writes, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He's reminding us, look, Church, live as if the gospel's actually true. Let your private life demonstrate the power of the gospel. Let your public life be a witness of the power of the gospel. And, and when you face opposition, point to the gospel. Jesus Christ has given us life. Jesus Christ has covered us in grace. And Jesus Christ has invited us to be used for his glory to point others to this incredible gift that has been received through the cross and the power of the resurrection. That's what we celebrate when we come to the Lord's table. We remember what has been given to us and we examine ourselves and ask, is there something in me? Is there passion in the flesh that needs to be laid down? Is there something in me that is not contributing to the witness of the gospel, but is actually a barrier to the witness of the gospel? Lord, show me what I need to lay down. Remember and examine. We want to give you the opportunity to do that now. I'm going to have a word of prayer for us and then we'll open up these stations all around the room and we want you to have the opportunity to go and grab these elements. We just ask that you get the elements, go back to your seat for a moment uh, of quiet reflection and then when everyone has had the opportunity to be served that desires to be served, we will take of these elements together. Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll open these stations. Father God, thank you. 
Thank you for the, the power of the gospel. Thank you for the good news of what has been done through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for grace. And thank you for inviting us to be a part of what you're doing in the world around us. So Lord, search our hearts. If there's anything in private, anything that would indicate the passions of the flesh are, are winning in our lives, Lord, would you just in your kindness show us what we need to see so that we can go straight back to the foot of the cross through the power of repentance, we can we say, Jesus, I've got to turn to you. I've got to turn away from this, this battle that's raging in me. And Lord, I, I need you. And we praise you for your grace, Lord God. If there's anything in us that is actually a barrier to us being a gospel witness in a hostile culture, in a hostile world, Lord, would you show us that? Just in your kindness, would you show us what we need to see? So that by your grace, our heart can be renewed. We can, we can follow you in faith. We can be used for your glory. Lord, we, we don't want to be taken out of the game. We don't want to be put on the sidelines. We want to be used for your glory. And so I pray, Lord, that you'd show us what we need to see. And we praise you that there is grace upon grace. Your grace is sufficient for our weakness. And so we remember what Christ has done. We return to the cross with gratitude and with a heart of worship, thanking you, thanking you yet again. Use this time for your glory. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. These stations all around the